Hey, Mark. Joe. How are things? I am well. How are you? I'm just as well as I was the last time. Okay. I have a question for you. Have you ever had a nickname? Oh, yes. I've had several. Okay. So what was your most hated nickname? Ooh, this is... Man... Okay, that's a tough question. Or most loved. I'll, I'll take either end of the spectrum. My favorite nickname was back in university at St. Evex, they called me a Smoke and Joe, and I like that. Of course, so. what's not to like about that? Exactly. What about you? Oh, you're not supposed to be asking me back. Come on. <laughs> I think the one that I hated the most, though it's very funny, was Ewok from Hell, which I can explain another time so we can introduce our guest. <laughs> Okay. I had a full beard back then, so it made more sense. Okay. More like our guest's beard. Yes, exactly. It is too bad that this is only an audio medium at the moment, because that is a fantastic beard that we have here. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to introduce our beard? Um, Well, the beard, it's, it's actually, it's more functional than nature in that it's hiding a double chin right now. So that's why it's so robust. I don't normally have it this voluminous. Uh, so I'm doing that with camera angle. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's mostly, let's be honest, it's mostly so we're just not staring at ourselves in horror the whole time. <laughs> anyway, we should introduce Corey. Corey, please introduce yours. Actually, we like to ask our guests to introduce themselves. How's that for weird? You can say whatever you want. As little or as much. Okay. Sure. Uh, sure. I, I guess you didn't do your homework, but that's on you. That is. <laughs> He's on to us. <laughs> He's busted us right away. <laughs> My name is Corey Redekop. I am a writer and a, a sometimes published writer, <laughs> as well as a, uh, a past librarian. And you've also worked in the publishing industry, too. That is true. Yes, of course. Yes. yes. I worked with Goose Lane Editions out here in Fredericton for a number of years. I was their publicist, and I still talk to them. But <laughs> And I would have to say that your first novel, uh, Shelf Monkey, would be one of on my list of favorite Canadian books. <laughs> wow. I love that book. Wow, yeah. That's good. Well, I, 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 won't, I, uh, I won't deny your feelings on the matter. <laughs> I have so many questions now. First of all, why did you laugh when you said that you were a published writer? Why why did that strike you as amusing? <laughs> well, just I, I I know a lot of authors and I'm actually very envious of their talent and their ingenuity and their imagination. And uh, some of them have published like a novel a year and it's uh, I'm much less prolific. Although I'm a published author, it doesn't feel like a profession yet to me. Yeah. Don't you hate those authors that you have the book a year or uh, two or three books a year? I really hate it when they do that and they're really good. It's it's pure envy on my part. You know, let me just say I am happy for their success. I wish it was mine. That's, <laughs> well, I have to beat an idea to the ground and it's just I'm not as well prolific i it, it just doesn't work for me my brain doesn't work like that unfortunately but but you have had some success i have actually done a, a bit of research on you especially after i got you mixed up with cory doctorow when mark first emailed me and, and suggested you as a guest and i apologize for that no hey i'd rather be mistaken for cory doctorow than most any other cory on the planet i mean <laughs> but i did look you up and i and i found uh, an excellent review of your book husk on uh, the Toronto Star, which does sound like a very intriguing book about a, an actor turned zombie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'm very proud of Husk, and I'm really incredibly happy with the response it got. It was far more than I'd ever expected. And it certainly opened up a lot of doors for me in terms of just meeting people. And like I, Cory Doctorow, I was on a, at the International Festival of Authors on a panel with him. You know, Rob Sawyer, and I've, uh, you know, I, I was on a panel with Margaret Atwood. And to this day, I don't understand how that happened. I, I think she may have gotten lost and entered the wrong room. <laughs> so, and the the other book, what is the, that uh, Mark mentioned? Tough Monkey, that was my first novel. That's um, about employees of a bookstore who decide to burn books that they don't think qualify as literature. It came out of a lot of uh, experiences I had working in a bookstore. It's a product of its time. I'm very happy Mark likes it, and a lot of people liked it, actually. Yeah. It actually, it wasn't a good review, but it was reviewed in the Globe and Mail, which is back when that meant something. So, <laughs> so Mark, our guest, is it sounds like he's uh, typically Canadian, if I may say so, very modest, but obviously an excellent writer. He is, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 fine to feel like you're not successful, even if you are, because that's 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 a struggle that a lot of people have. So that's normal. It's totally normal. Yeah. I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome. That idea, and I know most authors that I've met do to some respect, but I think most artists do in a lot of respects. I, in fact, I don't think I trust people who don't suffer from imposter syndrome. It is a bit suspicious. Yeah. So you know the uh, the premise behind this podcast, that our guests come to us with a piece of art of any kind that they uh, wish to talk about or champion. And I know that you have something in mind. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, a wide-spanning question. It's, it's very difficult to narrow down any piece of art to one piece. But I decided to go somewhat lowbrow, I would say and talk about the movie Life Force, which is a Toby Hooper film from 1985, I think. Yes. <laughs> Toby Hooper, the director of Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. Yep, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, Poltergeist. And Eaten Alive was one of his early ones. Invaders from Mars, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So then why, why Life Force then out of all those films? Well, I mean, out of all those films, Life Force is my favorite. I'm I'm not a Toby Hooper completist by any means. <laughs> is there such a thing? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, and I've seen, I've only watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre once. And it is a remarkably, I think I've only seen it once because it is such a remarkably intense piece of work. It definitely gets you on a visceral level. And it's, it's not a pleasant experience and it's not meant to be a pleasant experience, but it doesn't for me lend itself to a rewatch, but life force is sort of Toby Hooper given a ton of money and just allowed to do whatever he wanted. And I think that's only in the eighties. Could you actually do that? And I'm fairly certain a lot of cocaine was involved in that. <laughs> Well, and Poltergeist was a huge hit, right? Poltergeist was a, yes, of course. Poltergeist so, was yeah. the, so he's like, here, have money, take yeah, money. Yeah, I enjoyed Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. so that's uh, how it came to be. The um, It doesn't exist anymore, but the Canon Group by Golan and Globus, these uh, two gentlemen, they approached him and said, we want, as I understand it, we want to do a sequel 
to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Toby Hooper said, I will do that, but only if you allow me to do these other films first. And they said yes, and they threw a lot of money at him for, uh, especially for the time, for uh, Life Force. And they were not happy with what they got. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that I did watch the movie at some point. I can remember virtually nothing about it except that I was like, what is happening in this movie? Yeah, This has gone so badly off the rails. Well, it's intriguing. I mean, and certainly I understand that that point of view because when I first saw it was uh, I had rented it when I was 16. And yeah, I mean, you you don't you think it's going to be from the direct they say the director of Poltergeist and at least something like that, but it is so yeah. insane in in a lot of ways. And it's and part of that is of course because the Golan and Globus forced him to recut it, cutting out about 20 minutes so that nobody has any motivation that's explained and uh, just giving you a bunch of scenes that work on their own, but together it doesn't make a cohesive film. Okay. Yeah. So remembering that right then. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was my first reaction to it too. When I saw it, I had enjoyed parts of it, but on the whole I was like, well, I don't know as I liked it, but in the intervening years between then and about, 12 years ago, maybe, when I saw it again, I had a more, a lot of experience, the history of film, and a lot of uh, British films and the Hammer films. Oh. Yeah, who did a lot of horror in the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. and uh, they also did science fiction. They did a, a series of movies based on a series of television series of a character called Quatermass. Oh, yes. Quatermass and the Pit, the Quatermass Experiment, and Quatermass 2. I obviously did not say those in order. (laughs) Okay. And they are, through Hammer, they're science fiction horror films. And I I came into them sort of, I don't remember how. I think it might have been from following Rob Sawyer, the uh, Canadian science fiction. Oh, yeah. He loves to champion the Quatermass films. Yeah, he loves them. And so that, through just that recommendation, I think it was from him that I sought out a library copy of uh, Quatermass in the Pit. And it's remarkably good. It It is one of my favorite science fiction films. It's just, it's so vivid and so uniquely British in its way. There's a very unique style to Quatermass in its presentation, because the movies are very obsessed with finding scientific realities behind myths. Right. That comes up a lot in the series, and certainly in Quatermass and the Pit, where they discover a a buried spaceship full of dead aliens, and it turns out that these aliens, through their telepathy from the ship, have been sort of haunting that area. People have had these memories and they've interpreted them as ghosts, but it's actually this alien intelligence that was going to take over the earth. I think the problem with any movie is that when you really start to explain it, they all sound incredibly stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like my books. (laughs) Whenever I try to explain them to people. Oh yeah, I know. It's, it's the same with mine. Any story, because you suddenly start to think of all the plot holes that you missed. But I mean, as an experience, they are a lot of fun, and I really love Quatermass in the Pit, and I love 
to a somewhat lesser extent, the first two films are done in black and white. They star a different actor, Brian Donlevy, or Don Levy, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And he was an American actor that they had playing this Professor Quatermass. It's interesting that they would cast him because it is completely against his type because he's a big bear of a man. Hmm. You would not normally picture him as this, this logic-obsessed scientist. But they do work. They do work on their own terms. But I much prefer the Quatermass in the pit because you've got a, an older Quatermass, a bearded British Quatermass, and he has a much more of an authorial tone to him that really lends itself to the material and makes it seem a lot more important somehow. Hmm. I mean, they are entertainments, but there are they're fascinating. And I've always loved, I love a real good, healthy dose of ridiculous techno babble. <laughs> these you know ridiculous oh it's uh you know the uh see the medulla of the uh the brain has been transfigured because of uh evolution and the the uh you know just anything that like that anything just it kind of just rings bells for me so watching the quatermass films that kind of led me to another movie that i never liked at first john carpenter's prince of darkness which is a, a horror film about a bunch of scientists who have sort of been tasked with keeping evil at bay. And evil in this instance is a, it's basically a vat of, a vat of concentrated evil. Okay. <laughs> There's a, a lot of, a little stuff about aliens and, but it's more of a mood piece, but I didn't like it as a kid because it's, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. But as an adult, seeing it again and seeing the Quatermass films. And then just through some reading I'd done, I read that John Carpenter had written the movie under a pseudonym, which he called Martin Quatermass, hmm. because he liked the Quatermass films. And he was trying to do wow. sort of the same thing, bringing scientific mumbo jumbo and jargon into, because the people who've been watching this VAT for like 5,000 years has been the Catholic church. It's been hidden. So- you know, and how religion has been, you know, they, they hid it and used religion to keep people down and not telling them the truth about what evil was. So by reading that, I revisited Prince of Darkness and I really dug it as an adult. It, it, it again, mm -hmm. was ringing my, my bells in terms of uh, the techno babble, especially. I mean, there's uh, scenes between Donald Pleasance, the great Donald Pleasance, as this uh, nerve rattled priest and uh, Victor Wong as one of the world's great physicists and their, their conversations, which are so convoluted and talking about quantum mechanics and the mechanics of sleep and dreams and uh, tachyons and, and time displacement. And it's all, it's fascinating and yet ridiculous, but I love it when <laughs> smart people talk on film, even if it makes no sense, as long as they sound like they know what they're talking about. And it it's probably all complete gibberish, and I yeah. certainly would not put any of these movies up as accurate representations of any sort of science. But I love the ideas of them, and I love the way that they've been presented. So through that, through those appreciations and, and experience of seeing these films, I revisited Life Force many years later, and it had been re-released in a director's cut, which had added the 20 extra minutes Toby Hooper had to cut. Mm. And suddenly when I watched it, and with, without knowing that Toby Hooper did this on purpose, which I only found out later, 
I immediately clued into what he was doing and realized that this is the most expensive Hammer film ever made. <laughs> but, but yet Hammer had nothing to do with it. But that's exactly the vibe he was going for. He's, you know, it's set in Britain. It's got weird monsters and and weird technobabble and scientists talking about what happens after death, what happens to the soul. And it just, it grabbed me again. And by seeing these extra 20 minutes, I could sort of see where the, although it's not a perfect film by any means, it's... Sorry, so this was the director's cut that you saw with the the 20 minutes added. The 20 minutes added. Okay. It it suddenly, it made, the plot made more, far more sense. And even though it's nonsensical, I mean, the, the, it's, um, well, I forgot about the the novel. (laughs) It's based on a novel? Yes. Oh, Okay. That's interesting. I'd forgotten about this. I should have gone back because despite the fact that I didn't like the movie when I first saw it, I found a copy of the novel when I was about 18 or 19 and I, and I picked it up and it's uh, by a British author named Colin Wilson. Mm. And it is called the space vampires, which is a far more accurate term. See, that's what I remember about the the movie. That's Hmm. yeah. They're space vampires. They're space vampires. I mean, the, the, the entire plot is about, it, it happens when Halley's Comet was getting close to Earth, which was in the, around that time in the 80s. And it's about this joint British-American space exploration. Well, to get close to Halley's Comet, I'm sure they weren't meaning to land on it, but maybe they were. But the point is they're interrupted because they find this enormous spaceship in the debris of the comet, hundreds of kilometers long. And it's this weird organic Thing. It honestly looks like almost a tree branch with roots at the bottom of it. It's, it's a beautiful design. And so they go aboard and they find these bat-like creatures, which are all dead. But they also find these three naked humanoids, one female and two male. They take them back and basically, I mean, cutting down a lot of the subplots and how they get there... They get back to Earth. It turns out that they are actually vampires, and they believe they may have visited Earth once before. They are the vampires of old and legend, and they go around sucking the life force out of people. <laughs> yeah, so it's not blood. It's like it's like the, <laughs> the, the person's energy they're sucking. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the yeah. life force, and somehow yeah. it's never explained why, except that it does rejuvenate their own species. Yeah, and they're so... By seeing that and by with some of the characters, because there's a lot of very smart, potentially smart characters. There's a scientist, Dr. Falada, who's kind of a Quatermass stand-in. And I suddenly completely clued into what the movie was trying to do with its Quatermass influences. And I just, I fell in love with it from that point on. Because it is an absolutely bizarre film. It has so many jarring tonal shifts. And yet it's done with such passion. Nobody making that film, nobody was not giving their A game. I mean, everybody was hitting, was, was swinging for the fences. The actors, the, uh, the design, the, 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 the cinematography, the special effects. I actually read a, a tweet just a little while ago, which I, I completely agreed with. It's like, if Life Force hadn't gotten such terrible reviews when it came out, it probably would have gotten a nomination for best special effects at the Oscars. And I, I believe it, there are, I just watched the movie again the other day uh, for this and they are gorgeous. They're just like these incredible vistas of these aliens ships, these neon greens. It's almost a giallo 
design to it. I mean, everything is so gorgeous and and so uniquely British. And it's so weird that it's an American director, an American writer who who rewrote it, uh, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the original Alien. And even though they had also an American actor as these sort of uh, stereotypical, the tough guy, mm-hmm. Steve Rails back. I can see sort of why they did that, but I wish they'd almost kept it fully British. Yeah. But maybe it was a fact that uh, the Britain doesn't really have a space program and nobody would buy it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can get away with 007, but a space program no, probably meant, not. No, no. But as we all, well, despite <laughs> the fact this obviously came after Moonraker, so they must have learned something from that. I mean, you know. <laughs> now, you mentioned Steve Railsback, who I saw just recently in the movie uh, The Stuntman. Yes. He's a very intense actor, isn't he? Absolutely. It was a, he's a, an actor who never really caught on. But you're right. He was in The Stuntman, which I haven't seen in forever. But I, uh, I, mean, I know it's generally regarded as a very good film. Oh, yes. More Peter O'Toole's film than anything else because he plays that manic director. Yes, but Steve Railsback weirdly holds his own. Yeah, no, because he's the stunt man. But he's so unusual and kind of eccentric and outside the mainstream that you can see why he never quite caught on. Yeah, he has an energy to him and an energy to his his style that if in the right role, which is more of a twitchy, a nervous sort of sort, who's just yeah. uh, he's not quite socially adept maybe but he he's not of the he's not a standard hero no you know and but he definitely works for me in life force and and the stuntman and yes. it is it's kind of a shame that he sort of got relegated to the sort of b movies and just the the smaller roles and i see i see him pop up now and then i know uh he popped up in uh, at least one of the uh, rob zombie films he does a lot of that with uh character actors that he's admired in the past and good for him i, I like that i like seeing that he's very craggy now <laughs> back i mean he's just his face is all crag it's, it's such an intense face he had a good part on the x-files i think that's the last sort of big thing he was in he played a an alien abductee of some kind. And it's, it's been a while since I've seen that episode, uh, but he was really good in it. And again, because it, it worked with his twitchiness. And it's, it's almost like Christopher Walken-esque in its uniqueness, I would say. But I could see, also see where a lot of people would find it marginally off-putting. <laughs> they seem to like it back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, He needs Quentin Tarantino to cast him in something. That's right. Vivify his career that way. Yeah, I mean, come on, do a Robert Forster on this guy. Yeah, come on, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, Life Force. Then, so you said everyone was at their A game in this movie, and once you understood what he was going after, once you were on the same wavelength, you could completely appreciate it. Is it a good movie? I, <laughs> I know that the in the original iteration, the hundred and thirty-five minute version. I know it got a lot of negative reviews. I do know that uh, Gene Siskel, probably the most of, of Siskel and Ebert at the time, he actually liked it, but he called it a guilty pleasure, which, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a, which is a term that I understand, but as I grow older, I'm less and less inclined to like the term. Less inclined to feel guilty about these pleasures. Yeah. Why should I feel guilty about enjoying something? That doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah, exactly. 
everything doesn't have to be Othello or a Hamlet, you know, exactly. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why for me, it is a good film because it knows what it wants to be. And it absolutely goes for it. It's not apologizing for what it is. It's not winking at the audience. It's not trying to play different levels. It is like just a unique vision uh, by an auteur director given just all the money in the world to do what he wanted to do. I mean, how rare is that? And, you know, that, that happens on occasion. But I find a lot of times when directors are given that sort of freedom, the results are, for me, often far less than overwhelming. I think a lot of artists need limitations to fight against. And that's when Mm -hmm. they're, when they're, when their greatest work comes out through fighting something, whether it's the uh, constraints of the budget or studio interference or, or, or what have you. But I think a lot more interesting work comes from having to think outside the box in a lot of ways. And when you do get all the money in the world, well, it just, it feeds a lot of impulses that probably shouldn't be fed. <laughs> <laughs> they become self-indulgent. I love it when it works. And for me in this one in Life Force, it definitely works. But like any art, I can certainly appreciate why people wouldn't like it. Well, so it sounds like I have to rewatch it then with the director's cut. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But I do remember thinking it looked really cool. And that's why I went to see the movie. Yeah. Because it looks so cool. It does. I mean, it's not just the special effects. I mean, the whole look of it is so gorgeous. It really is. Like, it knows the the uh, the quality of the Hammer films in the 60s and the 70s, the color version. I mean, they, they were really famous for their, their Dracula films and their Frankenstein films. And the, the just how colorful they were. I mean, you can just see, like, the blood is ridiculously red in those films. <laughs> they, they, it's, it's like they had this immense freedom for something and they were working outside a system and they and these people wanted to try something new and they brought this uh i'm gonna screw up the pronunciation so badly but the uh grand granal i can never learn how to pronounce that word g-u-i-n-g-o-l but it's it's a a term blood and guts oh the the grand guignol or something yeah yeah, that's it. That's it. It's like one of those words I just, I don't know if I've ever heard it pronounced. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you've still heard it pronounced even after my attempt. So that's, yeah. And that's, uh, it's, they, they brought that forth for whatever reason through the Hammer films. They just said, we're making horror films. And while they are tame by today's standards, for the time, they must have just been shockingly violent. <laughs> I've not seen blood of that color. It's just unbelievably upsetting and i guess as a society we've kind of toughened up in a lot of ways in a lot of other ways we haven't or have we been desensitized maybe so but i think we've become far more prudes i don't know if you could make life force now not because of its violence or its themes even but for the fact that i haven't mentioned this yet but the lead vampire played by matilda may is the actress's name she spends most of the movie completely naked and she walks around completely naked and it is not shy about this. And it's, it's kind of like, again, it's pushing that envelope in terms of what you can see. Like we're, we're just look at the freedom. It's like a hammer film, but they've got even more freedom. So she's naked and they don't just shoot it so that we can see that she's naked. They, they shoot it so that 
we see that she's naked. Oh, we see that she's naked. There is there is no hiding this. Was this a an R-rated movie or obviously or an X-rated movie? It wasn't X. I meant to look that up actually. I'm I'm fairly certain it was R even for the time. I mean, this is not it's not a children's film. There's also the two male vampires. I mean, they present themselves as male. But it's like, you know what, if you're showing all this, why can't you show all of that? You know, let's have a little fairness and equality in terms of our nudity. I mean, it is what it is. It's also canon, and they were very famous for a lot of really C and D grade action films and a lot of gratuitous nudity and violence. I mean, I think that was kind of their forte. So that might have been demanded <laughs> by the <laughs> by the studio. <laughs> A lot of people are doing this sort of archaeological digs into our cultural past to unearth previously unrecognized hidden gems. You're just kind of reevaluating, you know, what, what we did in the past. You know, this that we thought was so great maybe isn't so great. And then this that has been completely overlooked should not be overlooked. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate that. I like that. I mean, it's um, there are certainly a lot of... Um, boutique DVD and Blu-ray production companies that release these films. And they're always smaller releases than you'd expect. They're, you know, they're not hundreds of thousands of copies like uh, they used to be, especially now with uh, streaming mm-hmm. coming into the forte and, and, and uh, physical media sort of going by the wayside. And there's actually a lot of great streaming companies that, that have a lot of these uh, cult films. Uh, Kino Cult is actually really good. There's a lot of strange stuff there, stuff you can't believe exists. And, you know, it's like, and I don't watch all of it, certainly. I can't watch all of it, some of it. It's just too upsetting. But I'm, in terms of streaming stuff, I am happy that that stuff is is available. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it's being reevaluated. And a lot of it, for me, a lot of it is on the money. These are not good films. <laughs> you know, but that's, I can appreciate why other people would love them. Right. And I yeah. think there's a nostalgia to a lot of it, certainly to some of my favorites still. It's like, you know, there's you still get that rush from when you were a kid seeing it. And it's not the same when you're an adult, but you can appreciate it despite the flaws. I know, for like, for example, The Black Hole, uh, Disney's uh, movie, The Black Hole, it is not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. But Part of me is always goes back to that 10-year-old that saw this and was just enthralled by it, mm. you know? And then as an adult revisiting it, it's like, you know what? Yeah, okay, it's it's pretty poorly written. This is not great. But there are like these flashes of brilliance, you know? And you're just like, oh, if they only they just like push that a little farther, you know? I mean, it's like in that movie, there's stunning uh, uh, design on these spaceships and the effects are remarkably good for the time. Then you've got some sort of wise cracking robots for the kids. And it's like, oh, back to that. <laughs> in the end, it goes to hell. It goes to literal hell. How did this happen in a Disney film? I don't know. I don't care. I'm just so happy it exists. <laughs> I, I think it does go back to the wavelength business, being in the same wavelength. I remember as a kid, myself and my sister, we loved Escape to Witch Mountain. <laughs> we saw it at just exactly the right time at exactly the right age and the whole concept of kids who had these magical powers just appealed to us enormously and it was a special movie for us mm-hmm. so i bought it last year and i'm like wow 
that's it's not the movie I remember. <laughs> but at the same time, I could still see there was still a, a, enough of a memory of myself as a kid that I I understood the wavelength that I was at at the time. I understood why I appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I brought Star Wars as my party piece to talk about. Because, yeah, I was just tapping into the 11-year-old Mark and how cool I thought all of those ideas were. Because I, I didn't know anything about, you know, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all of that yeah. stuff. And all that stuff taps into that. Now, when I look at them now, I'm like, okay, it's... It's not great, but it's, you know, yeah. the second one's really good, actually. Yeah, I think more people yeah. should revisit it. I don't think Star yeah. Wars gets talked about enough nowadays. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And I really love the way, Corey, that you just like, like the detective work to make the connections between like the Hammer films, the sort of the, the not Quartermass. Uh, Quatermass. Quatermass, yeah, yeah, I knew I was going to get that wrong. Uh, the Quatermass, the fact that he used that as his pen name. For the screenplay, like that's really cool pet detective work to can make those connections. Yeah, but that's all inadvertent detective work. I just came across those things and started doing it. I wasn't, I mean, then we're talking over years I learned this stuff. It's not stuff I actively sought out in terms of uh, trying to solve this, the puzzle of life force. But I love that in culture when you do make those connections and you go, oh, that's, I wonder if that author thought of that when they were writing that, or they just happened to write something that's so similar to what I'm thinking about yeah. right now. Like that's always a neat thing when that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for me always inspiring when I have that kind of, I guess it's just synchronicity and it's pattern recognition probably more than anything else, but it doesn't matter because it still means something. It still causes a resonance in your head and makes you go, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that was a thing. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's uh, that's absolutely uh, uh, it's it's exciting when that happens when you you can see something that evokes something in you from your past experiences and yet come up with something almost completely new on the other hand. I mean, it's it's what all art should aspire to. I think in a lot of ways. I mean, we all just what do they say? They we stand on the shoulders of our of giants. Yeah, we we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, you know, so we, all all we can do is try to tell the stories or uh, paint the paintings or do the music. I I don't do music or paintings, but all we can do is is acknowledge the past and yet keep trying to do new things with them. I think it's really exciting, especially when you find something that it has been told a thousand different ways. You know, and it's like you 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 didn't think it could be told or this particular story could be told in a new way. And then it does. And it's whether it's perfect or not. And I don't, perfect is an absolutely subjective term, but when it happens, it's always just the idea that it happened is glorious to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you probably remember, I'm fond of telling my students, the perfect is the enemy of the good. That is true. Could not agree more. Be true. Yeah. Right. I'm just thinking of a JK Simmons in uh, whiplash. When he said the most damaging words that you can say to anybody is good job. <laughs> <laughs> Another That's, great movie. Another yeah, great performance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I watched that a couple of months ago and boy, that is, that is hard to watch because I've, I'm, I, I have a lot of musical background in, in, in uh, my family and I've, I've never come across anything that specifically crazy, but I understood the person. And especially through that that speech uh, is just so lovely. And the fact that at the end, I mean, the whole it's last 10 minutes is just a drum solo. And it is yeah. riveting. 
<laughs> it is amazing. Yeah. It is so good. You know, you, you see the creation of art right there. It's captured somehow. I mean, that's, again, that's another story. I mean, that is just a story. It's like Rocky. It's Rocky, but with drums. But it's told in a new way and with such passion that it, it becomes something else. It becomes its own unique beast. And it, when, it, when it happens, it's, it's always exciting. Now, we'll have to wrap up here shortly, but I wanted to ask you, how does Life Force relate to your own work, or does it? Um, I don't know if it... It certainly doesn't relate to my work in terms of like our style. My style is usually more comedic in tone. I'm trying to work other things, but that just does, seems to be a, a thing that happens with me. <laughs> but I think how it affects me is it's in a lot of ways, life force is a dog's breakfast. It's everything you want in a film, you know, because I do, we, we haven't even talked. There's also zombies in there. I mean, there's, there's cosmic horror that comes with, there's a lot of Lovecraftian themes that, that go through the movie. There's space exploration. It starts as one movie. There's like four different films in this movie. It's, it starts as a space film. Then it becomes this, scientific exploration into the unknown. Then it becomes a chase movie. Then it becomes a zombie movie. Then it becomes a contagion movie. And it's, <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to Patrick Stewart in it, who I believe is a Highlander. He doesn't age a day. It's <laughs> See it for Patrick Stewart. If nothing else, it's five minutes of just such glorious fun. It is so weird. It's just, it's the way it, it embraces what it wants to be so perfectly. And I think that is an inspiration to me. The idea that whatever you're doing, just sort of do it the best that you can. And don't worry if anyone else is going to like it. It's rare that that would actually happen, considering it was a budget of $25 million, which at the time must have been about $100 million. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, it's a lot of money. You know, it's it's far easier to to, to do something on the writer's scale of just like, no one's going to read this. So what does it matter? <laughs> you know, or like maybe 500 people will, will ever read this story. So the, the fact that it happened with on such a scale with all these incredibly talented artists, I mean, the guys behind the star Wars special effects were the guys behind life forces. Mm -hmm. special effects. I mean, they brought everybody into it. Henry Mancini did the score. It's incredible. The talent behind this ridiculous film. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's the plug. For me, it absolutely works. It's such a... <laughs> they should have they put that on the poster. It's incredible, the talent behind this ridiculous it, film. It is, absolutely. It is, absolutely. I mean, that's... For me, it was kind of a... It's kind of a lightning in a bottle movie that you could never recreate and probably shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, you could retell this... I mean, this is the age of streaming series now. I mean, to expand yeah. these themes would would make a really fascinating uh, a series. And same with the Quatermass. I wish they would actually try to bring those back. And I've often thought Prince of Darkness would benefit from a few more hours just to really get into the characters rather than just, I mean, the, the feeling of dread in Prince of Darkness is so pervasive. That's what makes it such a rewarding experience. But you do understand like you're really not learning anything about these characters. <laughs> you know, they are all archetypes and would it be nice to have just a little empathy for what happens to yeah. them. 
Well, Corey, what a passionate endorsement for this film. I have to rent it now or, or find it and watch it. Yeah, I'm watching it. But I, director's cut, because for sure, that's going to be a difference. Yes, yeah. I'm actually, you know what, now that I think about it, I'm not I'm even sure if you can, if you rent it, like, say, up through Apple or something, I'm not sure which version you get. You may not even be able to get the original version. It might just be the director's version. Mm. I mean, it was... That was the delight for me when I first saw, when I saw it again. But just by sitting down and watching that, uh, revisiting Life Force, and not even realizing at the time that this is actually the extended version. Mm-hmm. So and it's like, oh, that's what happened. That's why that person was there all of a sudden. You know, <laughs> it's I don't know when that happens. I think it's a it's a wonderful thing in anything. Mark, any final thoughts in this subject? No, I just I'm gonna have to watch this. I you know. Corey Redekop, thank you very much for being on our podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for having me and letting me ramble on for an an hour. (laughs) You've been listening to Recreative, podcast about creativity talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them and you're probably wondering how can i support this podcast i am wondering joe how can i support this podcast i mean apart from being on it there's no advertisements in this podcast there's no tip jars there's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that but there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to are artists of some description, and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy. And if you enjoyed it, maybe you could review it for them. Oh, yeah. But maybe us too. Yeah, you know what? Us too. It wouldn't hurt. They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line. Sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jenks. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.